Waiguji ka khalsa, Waiguji ki fateh. Welcome to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. Um, happy Sikh Heritage Month. I am one of your co-hosts, Jasper Ball, and we are joined as always by Harman Kandola. Harman, how is it going? It's going great. Happy um, Sikh Heritage Month. It's a very exciting month across Canada. A lot of very interesting um, things happening. I encourage everyone listening to go check out uh, events in and around their province. Yeah. Is there anything um, you do with your kids or <clears throat> anything historically that's been done that just got you pumped about Sikh Heritage Month? Well, I always look at some of the smaller provinces. You know, Sikh Heritage Month in Manitoba has always been something that has punched above its weight in terms of their contribution and some of the events they do. The last few years, so much of this was online, which was uh, amazing. And um, this year seeing kind of a bit of a hybrid, I think is really exciting. So that even if you live in a city or a province that does not necessarily have a lot of events going on, you could participate. Uh, and hopefully that continues this month. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was, I mean, we saw so much sick perseverance and everything in COVID. And this was also one of those things that we didn't lose Sick Heritage Month. Um, I'm kind of excited that things are starting to happen in person again. And our big thing with WSO for Sick Heritage Month, keep an eye for it on our social media, is we are using the month to promote the sick education guide if you haven't had a look at it take a look just go to a just google world sick organization sick education guide we had an intern in the summer come on board and do this incredible work putting together an education guide it is uh and then we're we are massively pumping it up for the next month we're going to be sharing things on our social media every week about how you can use the guide how you can share it who the folks are in your life that can use it. And um, I'll share a little bit about it and then just follow us on social media for the month of April and you'll get to learn about the guide. Uh, so a lot of the stuff that World Sick Organization does is reactive. Something happens, we respond. Something happens, we respond. So we end up in these situations where, um, you know, someone will say to a kid with a juda, you can't go to gym class. Uh, someone will say, you can't wear your kirpan while you're doing this. Someone will, we had a kid who couldn't find a virtual avatar that looked like him that had a parka. We have kids who are bullied in the schoolyard. All of these things come to our attention and then we respond. This is a really great guide, which is proactive. So we're not at the point where we're responding to all of these really difficult things that happen to our kids at school, but we are going out there and we're connecting with educators and we're connecting with teams and we're saying, here's what you need to know about us. As here's how you accommodate us in your school boards and here's how you make room for us. So the we had our intern work on it last summer. We started sharing it with everyone we could think of that was interested, that was involved with school boards. We've made some great connections um, with every level of government. So in BC, we went all the way up to uh, the minister. We've been working with ministries that focus on education. We've been working with individual school boards. We've been going to into individual classrooms. We've connected with school board trustees, anyone we could think of that could champion the guide. We've asked them to, and, and it's been as, as big as like uh, everything from a letter of support to a conversation to us actually going into the classroom and doing these trainings. So 
take a look if you are in any which way connected to education as a parent, as a politician, as uh, someone who is on the government side of things. Uh, if this is something that is useful in your work, please join us in uh, this April in Sikh Heritage Month in promoting the education guide. We have um, some of the parts in there. So I'll share some of the stuff that's in there. There's curriculum. So there's here's how you teach a lesson on, and that's a, we're linking to the curriculum that the Sikh Heritage Mu Museum created. So there's some links to existing curriculum. Here's how you teach a lesson on Six and World Wars, for example. There is a list of books. So if you are at the year end and you're reviewing what's in your library, there's some books that we endorse and we've read and we love. There's a critical path. So you know which part of the guide to use when. There are common issues faced by six students based on the work that we do. There's just a like a 101, who are six, who are we? So if any of those pieces can be used anywhere, take a look share it with the people you love. Um, Harman, anything else you want to, anywhere that you, or just as a parent, anything you want to share about um, the kind of responses we have to working with school boards and, and where the guide could be used? So, you know, my personal anecdote with this is in, in our educational guide, we have, you know, the Sick Library collection and you know, some books that we've recommended that we've vetted and, and gone through. I remember when my oldest son, um, you know, was in kindergarten last year and for his birthday, we had donated copies of Foja Singh. We sent a copy of Foja Singh with him uh, to his school um, and, you know, for the teacher to read it. And the excitement that my son came back with of being able to have himself represented in a story that was shared in class, you know, it was probably one of the most special moments that I've ever um, shared with my with my son. You know, obviously we keep his hair and um, you know, being the only, um, only, only kid in his class, um, with a Judah for him to be able to have a, a positive representation, uh, of his community talking about the values and principles of his faith, um, was so special for him. Uh, and, you know, we got such a heart, um, felt message from his teachers saying, you know, how excited he was and how amazing it was for them. Um, as as um, educators to be able to have that that diversity of representation, and they actually then I think made a recommendation to their own their own um, school to you know invest in more um, diverse uh, materials. So you know it's 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 all about just starting that conversation, and it's so powerful. And so even as individuals, um, you know, just as parents, you have the power to start influencing change to make sure that, you know, our children feel included and other children feel included. And it just starts with, you know, even just making a recommendation like that. But uh, that was a really special moment for us as a family. And, you know, little guy was just so, so happy. And I, I've never seen him feel, you know, be, be that genuinely excited. That's amazing. I, I remember growing up in the public school system and not having anything that looked like me, not having a teacher. Uh, I think I w made it to high school in Brampton. I made it to high school before I had my first uh, Punjabi teacher and never picked up a book with anyone that looked like me or sounded like me. The way that 
publishing has changed. So folks are more empowered to share their stories and just the way that folks have stepped up as artists and doing creative stuff. There are so many great books and I know they're kids books, but I feel like if you're a grown up, read them as well. Cause you'll, you'll feel seen and there's some, there's some pretty good stuff. There's no reason that our school boards shouldn't reflect our folks. And the other thing that I constantly tell people when I have the chance to meet with folks to advocate for um, championing the guide is our demographics are shifting. And this is where all the work that WSO connects, because one of our major buckets is international student advocacy. We have amazing young sick families that are popping up in places before the, the patterns of immigration where you showed up where there were people that looked like you. And now if you're going where the school is or if you're going where the job opportunities are so you can get your PR and you're in that neighborhood, we are now going to have rural Canadian communities with a sudden burst of young sick families. And that's so exciting. And our school board should be equipped to deal with that change. So in today's episode, we have um, a three things that we're going to talk about. We have, uh, we're going to talk about the really, really incredible arrival of Sikh refugees from Afghanistan. We're going to talk about what's new in uh, trade relations between India and Canada. And we're going to end up talking about this new uh, supply and confidence deal with the NDP and Liberals. So stay tuned and we'll come back and talk about refugees. Six in Afghanistan. This is something that the World Sikh Organization and the Manmeet Buller Foundation have been working on for years. These uh, past couple weeks, and in the, um, I think there's still some folks coming in. We saw a second wave of families come to Canada to various cities in Canada because of almost seven years of advocacy uh, between the Manmeet Buller Foundation and the World Sick Organization. The to give a little bit, I know we talked we've talked about it before on the podcast, but just to give a short history, there are families in Afghanistan who have faced a lot of violence. We actually on March 25th, just past the two-year anniversary of a major bombing of uh, one of the Gordoras. And so we lost a lot of leadership in the Sangat and Sadly, the position we're in right now is that the families, the Sikh families that are in Afghanistan are still in that same Gurdwara where the bombing happened. That's where they're currently residing um, in terms of safety. So we're nowhere near done this work, but we had um, for seven years, we've been trying to get um, Sikh families out of Afghanistan. We did see the um, Afghanistan fall to the Taliban. We saw a very poor response by Canada, even though we had been screaming for years that this is coming and this is going to happen. Canada was surprised and it wasn't handled well. And we have been tirelessly knocking on doors and doing meetings and phone calls and email campaigns asking for an expedited pathway for these families to come to Canada. So seven years later, batch two is coming and arriving, which is really, really exciting. And while we celebrate this huge win in terms of advocacy, um, we're also using this a moment, uh, using this as a moment to highlight that it can't take this long. It can't take seven years. 
And there are still about 200 Sikhs and Hindus who remain in Afghanistan um, who are still under the rule of the Taliban and are not able to safely come here. Um, Harm, when you hear about what's going on and the families that are coming here, what's your reaction? So, you know, it was roughly two years ago um, when 24 Sikhs were brutally murdered in that terrorist attack on Gordora Hara Saib in Kabul, Afghanistan. Um, and, you know, on I remember two years ago, that feeling of helplessness, um, of, uh, of rage, of anger, of sadness, that there wasn't more that our country was doing for Afghan Sikhs and Hindus. Um, you know, and so here we are two years later, and we can celebrate that we've got you know, um, families who've been waiting for seven years, who've now finally reached um, Canada and reached different communities across. And everybody has probably seen this on social media. Um, but, you know, it's those 200 that remain in Afghanistan. Um, and as you rightly pointed out, you know, they're living in the same place that their own community, their own family members were brutally killed. Uh, and, and again, I, I think, you know, over the last several weeks, you've seen the World Sick Organization um, really be out there in, in the mainstream media, calling for that expedited program, calling for a direct sponsorship program from Afghanistan. Um, and we've seen our immigration minister, Sean Frazier, in the past several weeks kind of do a bit of a, a victory lap in getting, you know, Canadians ready for a deluge of refugees from Ukraine. Now, again, I don't think, you know, as, as, as the World Sick Organization and all other organizations that have been very active in this advocacy space, nobody's asking for special treatment. You know, we're, we're simply asking for being extended the same things that have been done now for Ukrainians and had been done for, for Syrians. So there clearly is, you know, the mechanism to be able to help those um, still in Afghanistan. There is still a mechanism to be able to help those who had fled to India. Um, and there's more that we can do. You know, let's not forget that one of the biggest challenges that we face with helping refugees is that, you know, is the classification. Uh, in order to be classified as a refugee, you need to have fled your home country and be now in a third country. Now, I, I don't want to get into the technicalities or long legal discussion about that, but you know, I, I have to give credit that the conservatives this, you know, in the past election had addressed this issue and said, we need to change how we classify who is a refugee. And we need to open this up. And, and let's all not forget that there is absolute political consensus on helping the Afghan Sikhs and Hindus. There would be zero repercussions for a liberal government to actually provide an expedited program for those uh, in Afghanistan or those in India. So there is no political consequence. There is no downside. And yet the frustration of the past two years and more um, still exists. And I, I, it, I fail to understand why this is not a priority. And I think it comes down to the fact that ultimately racial hierarchies it, uh, dictate how policy is made in this country. And that's a hard realization that's extremely upsetting to confront. Um, but I think, you know, for us, we continue to do the advocacy work and try to, you know, implore upon uh, our policymakers. But in the same breath, you know, watching um, us now be more empathetic towards refugees, there is some hope 
that that now trickles throughout the Canadian population. I remember what it is like to be, you know, a community that is now f- fleeing devastation, fleeing your homes. Um, you know, f- for for uh, after a long time, I think the majority of this country is having to confront what who is an actual refugee. Um, they're not coming here of their own volition. You know, they are fleeing. So perhaps this is a moment that increases people's empathy, uh, and I hope it does. Yeah, I think this thing, like, I'm I'm so heartened by the response to what's happening in Ukraine because you get to a point where you're like, you do this work um, advocating for for refugees and you start to think, like, nobody cares and you start to lose heart and then you see a response like what we've seen to folks in Ukraine and you're reminded that people can tap into their humanity and you're reminded that people can respond and and there's this kind of way that we're all just connected on the basis of being human. Um, so like just really, really great to see Sick Kids Hospital has already brought in kids who have cancer from Ukraine. Um, Canada has already brought in refugees from Ukraine. Canada has already showed up um, in Poland to help folks who are fleeing. Canada has already responded in so many real and tangible ways. The question then becomes, why can't this be extended to it's to to us? Why can't it be extended to brown bodies? Why can't it be extended? Why? And I genuinely and, and like with humility, I don't understand the process. I think um, doing the work around advocacy for sex in Afghanistan, learning what it takes to actually get people off the ground, the logistics of that, the safety involved, how far Canada can go. It was really humbling because it's not just, well, take one of your planes there and put them on a plane and get them out. Um, so it was it was very, very humbling to see how much of this process I don't understand. Um, but it seemed like we could make anything happen when when it was folks from Ukraine. And I've had um, entire work meetings that uh, started like just started with a half hour conversation on Ukraine. Um, everyone at work, like this mass email was sent out if people need mental health supports and were like that, that has never happened for brown bodies. I've never seen, I've never had a work meeting start, start with an acknowledgement of six of in Afghanistan, follow up with action items. Um, and it's not bad that it's happening for Ukraine. It's actually really amazing my constant question is going to be, why does that stop? And I think, Harmon, you named it. Um, if I can be frank for a moment, when I look at um, when I look at things happening to white bodies, I have a deep empathy. And that comes from years of conditioning, right? So I grew up on white stories. I grew up consuming white stories. Um, it's all I, it's all I read and saw and watched this, this wonderful diversity we have in the new age of television and film. I didn't grow up on that. Um, and, and even things like, um, you know, now I saw something on like Google that was about helping Ukraine and you could do things on Facebook and that was never made, uh, that was never available to me for brown bodies. All of that empathy, storytelling, humanitarian work. I grew up only seeing it for white bodies. And when you consume that much perspective for other bodies, you really have a deep empathy. So when when a white body is attacked, you're like, oh, if it happened in Ukraine, like that feels real because I because I know it because I understand it because I've I like just consumed so many stories that <clears throat> feel like that. 
for me, with the internalized oppression I have, when I see the violence on a brown body, it feels different. And it, I am struck with empathy, but I don't, I, I mean, I didn't grow up seeing TV shows and reading books and watching movies about sex in Afghanistan. When I did see brown bodies, they were products of war and violence and genocide. And that was normal. And you're like, yeah, well, that's just what your life is supposed to be, right? Like that's, like that's normal for you, but it's not normal for them. And so I actually have that same internalized oppression and that deep reaction where I one will elicit empathy and the other one won't elicit that caring in the same way. Those same opportunities have not been made available to me. I don't get daily reminders <clears throat> about sex in Afghanistan. I get daily reminders about what's happening in Ukraine just because I'm because my ears are on because I'm listening to the news because I'm working with people because there's um, I'm invited to interfaith prayers and invited to drop off um, stuff for food drives that are going to Ukraine, all of those things that are happening. If we can do this, and we have to be able to do it for everyone, we're not supposed to have these um, tests that refugees go through. The whole point of the Geneva Convention, the whole point of us waking up after World War II was supposed to be that um, instead of saying to people, oh no, well, we'll help you when we can. The whole point was that we made a mistake and from now on, we commit to the fact that people can show up and we will give them refuge and we will ask questions later. So this, the standard we have of, okay, sure. Let, why don't you go from Afghanistan to India or to Pakistan, stay there for seven years. We will test you and get your papers and do all of that. And then we'll resettle you in Canada. That process has got to go. And we've been able to see that expedited process for people in Ukraine. People in Ukraine are already here. And we're we're here celebrating this seven-year lobbying win to finally get our folks here. Um, I think one of the really... and Okay, so that's my, that's my, my really difficult and critical piece. Um, I think it's also... One more critical thing, and then I'm going to go back to strength. I also find it really difficult that the folks, particularly the politicians that put barriers in our process, we, like, we worked so hard to try and get people here. And when those people got here, the politicians are the first for the photo op. And it's really, really difficult to see um, the same people and institutions that put barriers in your way show up, be the first in line when the work actually gets done. Um, okay, and then my point of strength that I end on is, my goodness, uh, Buller, one person did this. And I mean, Harmon, what do you, what do you make of that? Like if, if you ever in a position where you're disheartened and this is all one person's legacy, how do you see what Manmeet Buller did and how it's manifesting? You know, uh, so being in Alberta, having had, you know, an opportunity to spend some time with the late Manmeet Singh Buller, or as we call the Mita, you know, his legacy, um, you know, just continues and watching when we see Polar Foundation continue that that heavy lifting, well, you know, seeing photos of his his and videos of his father and his sister, Tajinder, um, you know, welcoming these refugees, you know, it was such a such a powerful moment. Um, you know, I actually had occasion recently to do some work um, in the advocacy space on an accommodation issue here in Alberta with our current government, and you know, the comment that I made to someone was that. 
you know, the only reason why the government here or some of these people are understand who six are or understand these issues around accommodation was because they knew Mita and they knew of him, you know. And so all of these years later, his legacy manifests itself in so many different ways. Um, and and we, we miss that. Um, we miss that presence. We miss that um, inspiration and that leadership. So, you know, it, it, it is for me, it, it, it's, you know, that bittersweet moment that um, it, it is so amazing to see that hard work now come to fruition. And there's a lot of longing, you know, for for that type of leadership. But yeah, we still um, are, are are reaping the rewards of of all of the seeds that he planted. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a very very tough uh, tough moment in in the sense of you know we all miss him dearly. Mita was uh, an absolutely larger than life figure in politics in the community, um, and somebody who picked up this this issue. You know, when the WSO reached out to Mita. You know, shortly after 2015, um, you know, Mita was looking for uh, a, a cause. He was looking to dedicate himself to the Banth. And this was, you know, the seva that, um, you know, Waiguru boxed him with. And, and he, he he picked up that, that, that torch and, you know, he was an absolute force. He, he went across the world to put the pieces together to make sure that this would happen. Um, and, and, you know, we're very fortunate to see the, the benefits of that. And so watching, you know, all of those pictures from the airports and I, again, a lot of it I think is getting lost in, in, you know, the, the larger fights, um, of Ukraine and Russia, but in the war, but you know, those images have been extremely powerful. I think everyone who joined us in lobbying and continues to everyone who sent an email and everyone who raised money and every family who came forward to host a family from Afghanistan, this is your, victory and this is your next step and so this victory belongs to the sangat and i'm very very grateful for everyone who continues to work on that our uh minister of i'm gonna read this so i don't get it wrong um the Minister of International Trade, Export Promotion, Small Business and Economic Development, it's quite the title, Mary Ng, uh, went on a multi-country tour and she went to India and there she worked on trying to develop, work towards the Canada-India Early Progress Trade Agreement, EPTA. There is a, I was actually thinking when, when I was prepping for this part of the podcast that we should have a... Um, like there's like different podcasts that have different sound effects and we should have like an alarm that goes off when we talk about foreign interference because that's how I read the, that's how I read these news stories it'll be and um maybe we'll talk to our editors and see if we can get those sound effects in but that like alarm 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 foreign interference so I'm going to uh, set up what happened and then let's let's see what we can figure out what this means for us so one of the things that I think is um, our job as WSO is to put people on alert when there's foreign interference. And our job is to be critical of the human rights violations of India. I understand that Canada's job is to build relationships and to make money. So I don't want to dismiss what she's doing. And I understand that politicians can't act in always in my interest and always agree with me. So I want to share some of the things that um, that maybe highlight why 
we can't just close the door to India as Canada um, and and just say like, oh, y'all y'all are terrible to six. Um, we're gonna walk away. So here's some statistics. Global Affairs said merchandise trade between Canada and India increased 71% from 2012 to 2021. The bilateral trade in goods reached, uh, these are US dollars, $6.29 billion in 2021, a growth rate of 12% over 2020. Last year, India was Canada's sixth largest merchandise trading partner in the Indo-Pacific region, 13th largest merchandise trading partner globally, and 14th largest destination for merchandise exports. And this is from Global Affairs Canada. So uh, all this to say, sure, I see and if you're trading with a country for $6.29 billion, WSO can't offer you something that compares with that, right? You're not going to listen to us because we're not going to come at you with, with the $6.29 billion. Um, so you do, functioning in this world, have to have a functioning relationship with with India. Um, the NCCM, the National Canadian Council of Muslims, did put out a, treat, a tweet when this um, when Minister Ng, her, um, she was sharing information about these relationships being built, they did put out a tweet saying that this can't be at the cost of human rights. I mean, what, when you hear that Canada is working on strategic trade relationships with India, does, what, what's your reaction? Does anything worry you about that? Or do you think it can be done in a way that actually holds India to account? So this is a topic that always just fires me up. Uh, and I, I feel like, you know, our podcast should have a segment on, you know, something from India that just shocks you um, and that people don't realize uh, a lot of what's going on in India today. And, and I'm going to point out to, you know, in our press release, we highlighted a recent decision by a Karnataka court uh, to ban, you know, hijabs uh, from schools. But th- there was another court case that was happening in Delhi. Uh, that I wanted to point out. You know, again, sometimes, you know, these other parts of of India seem far away, but let's go to the capital. Recently, when there was a case related to uh, alleged hate speech, justice came out and said that if something is said with a smile, there is no criminality. But if something is said offensively, then there may be criminality. So hate speech, you know, if you say hate speech with a smile, you know, the Delhi High Court is saying, yeah, that's okay. You know, and then the other aspect of it was, if it's said during an election, well, you know, that's just what you say to create a mahar, uh, to create an atmosphere without there being an attention, because that's what elections are about. You know, and it's like, okay, this is, this is insane. Um, you know, like the way that the, the government apparatus and the justice system in that country can just dismiss what is happening, the targeting of minorities, of hate, you know, of divisiveness, of just giving it excuses, giving it legitimacy. How does this not alarm, you know, Canadians? And, and you know, you said that, you know, the minister I talked about human rights can't come at the expense of human rights. It wasn't the human rights of the people who are suffering in India, right? It wasn't, you know, the people that on whose behalf we advocate about. What she starts the call with the Minister of International, uh, um, the Minister of Commerce of India, 
uh, Mr. Piyush Goel. She talks about Canada's solidarity with the Ukrainian community in Canada and abroad. And so the focus when it came to the conversation about human rights wasn't based off of the realities that we've been trying to expose that the Indian state um, is, you know, that is committing. It was actually their lack of solidarity with Ukrainians that, you know, we need to we, we need to delve into how we go about our foreign policy because, you know, a Ukrainian deputy prime minister of this country, Christine Freeland, has essentially prepared our country to say that our country will suffer consequences for its bold position on the Ukraine. And so I'm going to disagree with you slightly, um, doctor, in the sense of, you know, we don't see that same level of bold political stances when it comes to issues that affect, you know, minority communities. And that's absolutely what- not. We have never seen a sick politician go to bat for a sick community the way Christian Freeland did for Ukraine. And yet, it, you know, we are politicians are continuously afraid of their own shadows and saying, well, how will I be perceived if I stand up for us? You know, I will be accused of only standing up for the sick community or for brown people or whatever it is. And therefore, I can't do it. Therefore, you know, I need to defer to someone else, you know, or I'm going to have to do back channel conversations. And when Christina Freeland, Christina Freeland is leading from the front line, accused of, you know, being associating herself with far right wing groups, with fascist groups, you know, she can be excused for that. And nobody says anything. And these same politicians from our community who are watching this double standard still cannot find the himmet or the courage to speak out is what absolutely always disappoints me. You were elected to be that voice. Every single one of you went out to the community and said, you know, Asi thodi avaj pachoniya, Asi thodi avaj artwa lake janiya, Asi thodi avaj parliament lake janiya, uthis asi gallanu uthaunge, asi thodi le khadeya. You know, we all have heard that phrase utilized in a different way during an election. And yet here we are about to do a trade agreement with India that's been stalled for years, you know, in the shadow of this war, because nobody's going to speak out. And I absolutely commend the NCCM for starting to speak out and, and talk about these issues and talk about, because it's become so brazen how yeah. Indian, you know, RSS and, and, and you know, Hindu nationalism uh, and Hindutva have used violence um, is become so, so apparent that we cannot ignore it as Canadians. And let's not forget the majority of what we export to India is lentils. So if we want to talk about trade in particular, it's basically lentils that we are sending there. And the Indian government has a stated intention to become self-sufficient on the issue of lentils. They do not want um, to have to import them. And so 95% of of our agri-food exports to India are lentils, which India has imposed tariffs on. They have more stringent requirements on. They don't want to be importing lentils over the long term or pulses. Um, And so, you know, I look at this and say, okay, yes, I understand the minister is looking to expand trade relations across the world. She's traveled, she's spoken to so many different South Asian countries. This is part of the strategy. However, when they're talking about human rights and, and informing on this conversation, 
we the government is still not getting it. They're still not understanding or identifying the real concerns. And that's the problem that I have is that despite the advocacy in this space, despite the knowledge that exists within their party. Um, and, and I think you're starting to see other minority communities start to feel betrayed by this liberal government when it comes to the issue of human rights, um, of, you know, and our foreign policy. I, I just want to go back a second to this, this Christian Freeland thing, because I think that's so important to name. Um, she, her uh, maternal grandfather, her nana, was a Nazi sympathizer. And what, and she can come forward and can, and so we're talking about like an actual Nazi and, and so was like doing bad things. And she can come forward and unapologetically bring her heritage into her politics and unapologetically bring the entire country into defending Ukraine and not be held accountable for her grandfather's actions and, and move forward this is something that our politicians, even when they have reached the highest levels, when they have been ministers at her level, um, have been so afraid of being linked to Khalistan. Every single one of them has roots in WSO and Khalistan. We could break out every single one and look at the degrees of separation. Every single one of them has buried them, hidden them, broken them off. Every single one of them has refused to bring their identity into their politics. Every single one of them has not championed sick issues. Not a single one. Um, we've had some had some really, really great um, support from like backbenchers and um, from other folks who are MPs, but we're talking about at high levels, none of them have advocated um, like loud and proud the way Christopher Freeland does about Ukraine. And it, quite the opposite, actually. We've seen them continue to work strategically on trade relations with India. Um, and we, and, and, and again, to be fair, she won't be, we've seen the warm embrace if it's happening in Ukraine, it's happening to us. They're just like us. We've seen the warm reception that's been there. We know that our our politicians are also held to a double standard that's racist, will not be warmly embraced for saying, let's get six out of Afghanistan. Um, but there's, there is that, that double standard there, and there's a complete lack of owning it. And I, we have seen over and over again... Um, in Trudeau's cabinet, we've seen him embrace diversity, but ask folks to actually leave what makes them diverse at the door. So if it were like J Jody Wilson-Raybould, you're welcome. I would love to say I have an Indigenous woman, but can you not be so Indigenous? I'd love to have um, Sardars and I'd love to have the stars, but can you not bring the sick issues? Um, I'd love to have folks who have disabilities, but can you not be um, bringing your critical disability theory? Uh, very, very difficult to see. But again, this is the world. I do understand the part where the trade needs to happen, and those are some big numbers, and those are some important numbers. We're going to continue to do what we do. Um, every pathway possible for foreign interference has been taken up by India. So the consulates double as spy hives. Um, they have bought newspaper domains that sound similar to Canadian newspaper domains for misinformation and disinformation. Every possible social media platform has been used and trade relations have definitely been used. Every time these conversations happen in closed doors, there will be that ask, can you control your sex? Can you control 
the threat to India sovereignty that's coming out of Canada when the reality is that the foreign interference is a th- from India towards Canada is a threat to our sovereignty as a nation that isn't taken seriously. Let's take a look at this big time liberal NDP um, supply and confidence agreement. So this is, uh, Harman, do you want to explain to our listeners what went down? Yeah, great. Um, you know, so recently, and this has been rumored since November that the NDP and the Liberals were exploring a coalition agreement. Um, and again, to what extent this is binding on both parties um, is not really known. But essentially, the federal NDP in Canada um, has struck a deal with the minority government Liberals that they will um, not challenge them in a confidence vote. Uh, provided that, you know, in exchange for the Liberals passing certain policy. And again, the details on, you know, how the mechanisms of that policy would work are are, are fairly um, limited. But essentially, the two major pieces are, you know, on a pharmacare, universal pharmacare program and a dental care. You know, I, I think there's a lot of people who look at this from a political um, scenario and say that, you know, the NDP... Had, is now kind of capitulated to the Liberals, um, has guaranteed that it you know it's it's going to struggle moving forward in, in in you know not being able to hold this government accountable. Um, unfortunately, I think you know the NDP found themselves in a situation where you know nobody really wants another election. Um, I think you should you know from a political perspective, you had two parties that represent more than fifty percent uh, of the vote in the last election coming together and working on policy and coming to agreement that the majority of Canadians want to see implemented. So from that perspective, you know, it, it would be a positive. Um, it's a positive that, you know, the Liberals are finally going to be forced to do something that they've said they're going to do for years. And so if you look at, you know, what is Trudeau most likely now going to be remembered for, for the decade that he most likely will hold power, because this agreement will basically take us um, all the way to 2025, um, which gives you know Trudeau that that decade in power is you know th- the expansion of the social safety net you know things like childcare and now dental care pharmacare um, really will be kind of the legacy for you know Justin Trudeau Prime Minister Justin Trudeau um, in in exchange I think you know the question to Jagmeet has been well you know um, doesn't this just give the Liberals room to take credit for what have always been NDP policies I mean even childcare. Um, w- would have been a policy that originally originated with with the NDP, and Jagmeet's answer um, has been consistently that, you know, I don't really care who takes credit. You know, I'm here to make sure that you know what people need is going to be uh, passed, and I think that's the right approach. I think it's rare to see in politics politicians who are more than willing to give up credit. Um, to ensure that people's lives are better. Uh, and I wish more politicians were willing to work in that type of manner with that type of empathy. But we're all been conditioned in the past several years to want political leaders who are going to, you know, kind of beat their chest and be, you know, super, uh, you know, br- uh, brazen or br- and have a lot of bravado about implementing policy and fighting the other side. I mean, you watch, you know, the conservative leadership race. The four, you know, the front runner right now is Pierre Polyev, whose claim to fame is essentially confronting uh, Justin Trudeau and um, and confronting the Liberals in committee work is putting out videos attacking um, everyone else. 
you know, that's essentially his his mo, uh, MO. But in this case, we've got a deal between these two, two uh, parties that pushes us all the way to 2025. I think a lot of Canadians are happy that we're not going to see a new election. Um, I continue to be disappointed in that neither of these guys is talking about Bill 21. Um, I guess human rights don't really matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're like, oh, fuck, you should know. You guys are, you're not talking about what matters. These guys, So I think um, some of the best and some of the worst work happens in minority governments. And I think by worst, I mean, like, we get exhausted. We spend so much money on elections. This last election, um, just we spent all this money and right back where we started. Um, minority governments can bring in unwanted voices, so on and so forth. This is, I think, the kind of strength that minority governments can have because two parties can make each other get stuff done. And I think that there's, so part of me is optimistic and saying like, this is, this is, we're not, nobody wants to go back to the polls. There's actually going to be stuff that we're pushing for here that happens. Um, things like universal healthcare in Canada, like there's, there's such great things that have come out of the NDP having power and, and being able to push people when the NDP is at its best when it's, when it has power in a situation like this. Um, there, I read a scathing, um, uh, op-ed about this saying like, what's the difference between the two of them anyways? The NDP has dropped their, um, socialism from their mandate and the liberals don't even have a mandate. Um, and I just, it made me laugh and it was, there's part of me that, uh, that is disappointed that the liberals need to be put in a position like this to even push things like dental care and pharmacare. Um, isn't that something that should, they should do without coercion, sorry, collaboration. Um, and then part of me is like, yeah, this, this could work and this could, this could be strategic and this could be historic. I do find it, um, the conservative criticisms a little bit funny. Cause I think, uh, one of them was like, this is just a power grab. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's politics. Like it's, um, that's not a, that's not a criticism. You're just describing what's happening. That's not, um, you've played it now they're playing it. Um, yeah, so there's there's a lot going on there. It's going to be interesting. I think it's interesting that there's there's so there's no cabinet positions for the NDP, so there's no power there. And the way they structured it, so the NDP is going to support on um, confidence votes and on budgets and stuff, still leaves room for Digme to be critical of Justin Trudeau. So I think there's a little bit of we're still going to see something interesting happening there. How this impacts six is going to be interesting. The my very short time doing advocacy and lobbying for WSO, I have seen that the folks who are not in power are the more are the most likely to champion our advocacy. And it's easy to amplify sick voices when you don't have to do anything about it. So if the liberals are in power, we've found a lot of support from conservatives and vice versa. So what does this mean? I guess this is the question that that where it comes back to Canadian six. What does this collaboration between the two parties mean for a group like WSO who relies on people being critical of the dominant government to actually get anything done? Does this amplify our voices? Does this give us more power or does it give us less? 
You know, I think it would have been interesting had this been a natural coalition government where there was some sharing of power and, and there was some ministries given over to the NDP. You know, essentially the functioning of this government will remain exactly the same. It just accelerated timelines. So I think from a sick advocacy perspective, you know, the fact that um, the government can't be challenged in the same way as it could be in a minority government hurts, you know, anybody who's trying to do some advocacy outside of, um, you know, those within that government uh, reach. So I, I think from a from a Canadian sick perspective, you know, this is something that, um, you know, potentially could um, limit uh, the, you know, the discourse because this is a government that now has nothing to fear in terms of consequences to their positions um, until the next election. And again, you know, I think it's safe to say and assume that a 10-year government is you know, going to be, his, you know, typically how long governments last. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of done done the, the time. And so, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful as ever that, you know, we continue to be strong voices on, on issues that, that affect the sick community. Um, but, you know, it, it's one of those um, deals that does not really address all of the concerns and issues that I think uh, could have been raised and, and finding that common ground. Um, I would have liked to have seen Jigmeet kind of push a bit deeper um, on, on some of the other social issues that exist. Um, but, you know, he at least now, you know, a lot of people who are in, in positions um, of vulnerability can look forward to some type of dental care and, and, and pharma care. I mean, if dentists are to be believed and dental care is such an important part of, um, you know, your personal health, there's no reason why the government should be covering it. That's my personal position on that. Uh, yeah. and so I am happy to see you know, our governments finally step up to that. Maybe we yeah, should just I think less. I think there's going to be some big, big wins. I agree with you. Like there's going to be some, this is again, where you see the magic of minority governments and you, I think well-played. Um, and there was, if those big pieces fall into place, that'll be historic. That'll change the way our country functions. I think for Canadian six and our very specific asks, sometimes workplace accommodations or, Six of Afghanistan, uh, regulating schools so that they don't bring in as many international students, like the kind of work that we do that's in the nitty gritty. There wasn't a place for it here. And it's going to be interesting to see how folks respond to our asks, given that now there isn't going to be real teeth to any of the criticisms because they're not going to result in the ultimate threat, which is a vote of non-confidence. That's our podcast for this month. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a happy Sick Heritage Month. Um, make sure you check out the Sick Education Guide. Make sure you check out all. We're on every social media platform at World Sick. I think it's at World Sick or start typing in at World Sick and you'll you'll see us show up. Um, everything we do is volunteer based and is community funded. So if you, if there's anything that we've done, bring helping the six get here, helping folks, uh, in every which situation, we've got such incredible wins that we need to start highlighting the wins as well. Um, please make sure you go to the world sick organization website and consider making a donation or joining our, this month club where you can make a donation every month. So we'll catch up with you again next month. Never a dull moment in the life of a Canadian sick. Until we meet again. Oh, I could you got Kalsa. Oh, I could you